Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, U.S. Poet Laureate, Nobel Prize, and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Louise Gluck with October Poems. Is it winter again? Is it cold again? Didn't Frank just slip on the ice? Didn't he heal? Weren't the spring seeds planted? Didn't the night ends? Didn't the melting ice flood the narrow gutters? Wasn't my body rescued? Wasn't it safe? Didn't the scar form invisible? Above the injury, terror and cold. Didn't they just end? Wasn't the back garden harrowed and planted? I remember how the earth felt red and dense. In stiff rows, weren't the seeds planted? Didn't vines climb the south wall? I can't hear your voice, for the wind's cries, whistling over the bare ground. I no longer care, what sounds it makes. When was I silenced? When did it first seem pointless to describe that sound? What it sounds like can't change what it is. Didn't the night end, wasn't the earth safe when it was planted? Didn't we plant the seeds? Weren't we necessary to the earth? The vines, were they harvested? And now on Arts Express, not just the Hollywood blacklist, Macbeth and McCarthyism. Voodoo Macbeth, a conversation with actress Inger Tudor. A dramatic feature recreating with explosion of the theater arts during the Great Depression, federally funded FTP, and Orson Welles directed triumphant staging of a Haitian set production of Macbeth with an all-black cast in Harlem. Inger Tudor stars in Voodoo Macbeth as the forgotten Rose McClendon, a leading actress of the 1920s and founder of the Negro People's Theater and as guiding light in the creation of the Federal Theater Project's African-American theater units nationwide. She starred as Lady Macbeth in this first-ever direction by a young Orson Welles. We'll also hear from Welles in an interview about this production back then, and more scenes from the original Voodoo Macbeth and Orson Welles reflecting on the production and its historical significance. Tudor, best known for her portrayal in the legal drama series Goliath, and as a former litigation lawyer herself, she'll analyze the pros and cons of courtroom drama on screen. And drop hints as well about her upcoming role in Nuns with Guns as the mother's superior head of a church posse targeting sex traffickers. First, some scenes from Voodoo Macbeth, then Inger Tudor. Houseman came to the studio today. And what did they want? They wanted me to direct the Negro Theater Unit's production of the Scottish play. Macbeth. If I'm going to direct, it needs to be something that will put me on the map. Orson Welles, meet Rose McClendon. The play is set in 19th century Haiti. Not with witchcraft, with voodoo. Voodoo? In some circles, a red tie has a certain meaning. What's that? <laughs> He hired a white set designer and his wife as the producer. I have no limits. That's why you hired me. Jungle drums. Din of the jungle canopy. Voodoo spirits conjuring powers beyond imagination. I can assure you, that monstrosity will never see open at night. There are protesters outside right now who want us to fail. I'm tired of being nothing but a furnishing to you. Our leading man has disappeared. He has been detained by immigration. The New Deal funds American theater. 
Not this dark commie, witchy mumbo jumbo that you call voodoo. You don't know anything about sacrifice. Well, you have to give up for your art. Let's take a break, everyone. No, we're going to do it again and again until we get it right. Orson. I'd rather review that that play was an abomination. Clearly, you haven't seen the play. Why'd you say that? Because if you had, you wouldn't have felt the need to pay me. Damn, be he who cries. Enough. It's not too late to fix this. I'm not sure I know how. Let's talk. Hello, and welcome to our show. Sure. What was it about Voodoo Macbeth that inspired you to become part of this film? Well, I um, I have the privilege of being able to participate in a table read of the early draft. And when we were working on it, I just remember thinking, I lived in New York for nine years and I did theater, and I can't believe I'd never heard of Rose McClinton. And the idea that there was this black woman who was a Broadway diva who worked consistently from basically like 1919 to 1936, um, and and I had never heard of her, that that was inspiring to me and also a little, you know, disconcerting because you're like, how do I not know about who she is? And then to find out that as part of the Federal Theater Project, she started uh, 11 different Negro theater units around the country, I was like, okay, this is a story that people need to know about. They need to know about her. And what is the historical significance of this production back then that led you to be drawn to this film? Well, it was the idea that, um, so Rose McClendon and uh, producer John Houseman, whom a lot of people probably only know as the actor in The Paper Chase, um, but he was more known as a producer, they were the head of the Negro Theater Unit in Harlem, and they wanted to do an all-black production of Macbeth. Uh, Rose McClendon was going to play Lady M, and they needed a director. And, you know, I think part of it was due to finding someone who was open to this idea of doing an all-black cast. And so they picked Orson Welles, who at that point had never directed professionally. He was only 20 years old. And then he was the one who had decided to set it in Haiti. So I think the significance is this was an all-black cast doing Shakespeare in New York and ultimately traveling around the country so that people could see that this is something that we are capable of doing. I mean, even even now, you'll still run into some uh, directors or some people who think that African Americans are not gifted in being able to speak the verse of Shakespeare, and it's just not true. And what can you say about wanting to portray Rose McClendon and her significance historically? The idea that this woman, as part of the Federal Theater Project, headed up 11 different units around the country, um, and, and the idea that this was a Black woman uh, who was put in charge of these things. Uh, she was also, she performed, I think her last performance was in Mulatto, which was written by Langston Hughes. Uh, she knew County Cullen. She was very involved in the the Harlem scene at the time. And to, to know that there was someone with this amount of influence and power and talent, because even I was reading and reading up on her one of the things that was noted was even if a production she was in wasn't reviewed well, she was. So to know that we have these people ahead of us as as Black actresses in this country who had this gift and this talent, and we don't know about them widely, I think it's very significant to uh, to know that they were there and that we have icons and people that we can look up to from history. Yeah. Now, as we see in this film, there's a struggle to prevail artistically under a cloud at the crossroads of racism and anti-communism. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I do think um, this, but now, obviously, this is based on true events. So some things we've, we've added to to give a more dramatic effect. Initially, as portrayed in the movie, um, they weren't specifically dealing with an anti-communist threat um, from one of the senators. However, 
the Negro theater unit and the Harlem theater unit in particular, I think because of the type of plays that they did, they were ultimately defunded because there was a belief that their um, a lot of their things were more had a communist leaning. They were a little more left at the time, and with the McCarthy era um, happening, you know, obviously anything that was considered to be communist was uh, taken down. And I think it it is important because it shows that the censorship on artistic freedom. And this idea that something that doesn't, especially when it comes to art, I mean, I feel like art is the place for people to experiment, to exchange ideas, to, uh, you know, sort of forge new horizons and think about things in a different way. And to have the government clamp down on that, um, you know, it keeps us from really being able to to express ourselves and to see the other places we can go. And it's just another sign of censorship. And thankfully, we don't have it to that level today. But, you know, it it does crop up and it still crops up depending on what the project is. Yeah. And with cancel culture today, certainly. And did Orson Welles really appear in blackface on stage back then that we see in the movie? He did not. And so... (laughs) Uh, this this is the thing. We we have it. I, I don't want to spoil this point in the movie. It happens in the movie in relation to the play as it's going on. Um, it did not happen at that specific time as we portrayed it in the movie. However, it did happen that when the production was on tour, one of the actors couldn't go on for some reason, and he did appear in blackface. And it's so interesting because, you know, then um, it wasn't considered... Well, I'm not going to speak for us, but in society, it wasn't considered that big of a deal for a white man to be in blackface because, you know, at that time, white men were playing Othello. And I think think for the movie, it's less of the reaction from the white audience and more the reaction from the black actors in the production because this is supposed to be an all-black production, so... I think what they were really trying to point out is for the white director to think that it's okay for him to replace the black actor. That that was the issue I think they were trying to bring forward. And what about the theater critic handed $300 to write a bad review of the production? Did that really happen? And I could tell you, as a critic myself, I'm not surprised if it did. <laughs> Well, now, I do not know if he was handed money to write a bad uh, review. However, I do know that he actually did die the day after he wrote the bad review. And it was rumored that that one of the actresses playing the voodoo priestess, or uh, that they may have put a curse on him. And please shed more light on what the protests outside the theater were all about. So um, there were actually protests, and they were a combination of things. One of the big things was that um, the Federal Theater Project as was part of the WPA, which was happening at the time um, during the Depression. And so one of the things that um, the public wanted and the community wanted were jobs in the community. So one, of the protest, one part of the protest was due to the fact that there was concern that having this white director would mean that a lot of the jobs connected to the theater would not go to the black residents of Harlem, that they would go to other people. So part of the protest was that they wanted to keep the jobs um, connected to the theater in the community. Um, One of the other things that people were protesting was there was a concern that he might, or he being Orson, might choose to, how do I put this? There was a concern that they thought that the way he was going to stage it would be a mockery um, and that trying to set it in Haiti was in some way his making fun of or trying to exploit black culture. So there were a combination of protests that were going on. And I wanted to ask you, what led you to become part of Goliath and the important issues in the real world that it dramatized? Ah, Goliath. Um, Well, it was... Oh, wow. <laughs> I wasn't expecting a question about Goliath. Um, well, one of the things that I 
enjoyed about Goliath and that was exciting to me, um, I was on I was on three episodes on screen and a few others off screen um, as voiceover only. But two of the episodes I was on were directed by um, Anthony Hemingway, um, who I, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He is a a black director who's one wonderful to work with, incredibly talented. Um, he's uh, the main director for the uh, the People versus OJ and several other things, um, and I can't think of them at the moment. So the idea of working with him was very exciting, um, and I really did enjoy working with him. And also, I have a background as an attorney, so I'm a big fan of uh, legal dramas. And this particular drama was just so edgy and so... Um, uh, I felt so different from a lot of the other ones that can be, uh, you know, exciting but a bit formulaic. And this did not feel formulaic anyway. So that was that was part of the draw for working on Goliath. I am no longer a lawyer. I um, I agree with a lot of the issues. There can be a tendency, and especially depending on, you know, who you represent as an attorney, and like we're talking about most in corporate law, you're usually representing very big clients with very, very deep pockets. Um, there can be a tendency to, in, in, being, um, in being forceful about your representation and your protection of your client, you can sometimes um, overlook the importance of making sure that the client is not harming the community. And um, and we know from a lot of things that happened with super funds and various environmental things, um, you know, in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, that a lot of these corporations were allowed to get away with things that they should not have been able to. Um, but that's not just about uh, law firms and lawyers. That's also about the law and uh, whether or not the EPA was being stringent enough and their restrictions. And, you know, there are uh, so, so many things connected to those issues of environmental protection. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I think especially that first season, because that's the one I was in, I think the issues that it touched on were very, very important. Um, and I hope in some ways, you know, like things like, Shows like I'm getting slightly off track, but but I, I promise it's all connected. But when you see things like a dope sick, or you see I can't think of the name of the show, but the one where they were showing how uh, the water had carcinogens and it was affecting entire communities in different parts of the um, um, the middle of the country, you it, it brings an awareness that I think a lot of times uh, we as citizens aren't always clued into what's actually going on. Um, in terms of what our government is or is not doing in terms of protecting us and protecting our environment. And what can you say about Nuns with Guns, in which you play Mother Superior of a group of nuns recruited to pose as prostitutes to bring down a sex trafficking ring? Um, what, this, is, this is one thing I will say. I, there were people involved with the project who actually, in real life, are in, have been involved with bringing down sex trafficking rings and have found that there have been ties to the Catholic Church involved, depending on what country it's in. And that's all I can actually say about that. Ah, and they may have been nuns? Um, I, I think there may have been nuns involved in terms of helping. I don't know that there were nuns involved <laughs> in terms of <laughs> praying prostitutes. Well, what's it like to play a nun? <laughs> um, I've actually played a nun a couple of times, oh. <laughs> as a matter of fact. I've, I played a Mother Superior in a, uh, a production uh, called Diet of Worms. Um, and it's, it's always a very interesting prospect. It makes your life easy because you have one simple costume, your Mother Superior habit. <laughs> it makes life a little bit easier. I think at this point they're, um, they're in talks about whether or not it's actually going to be a film or whether or not it's actually going to be a limited series. Not sure. I'm not sure. And it was shot in such a way where it could potentially be both. And any last word about Voodoo Macbeth? 
Well, we are opening in New York and in L.A. on Friday, October 21st. And then I think there will be rolling openings in other cities after that. And I just encourage people to come out. I think I think one of the beautiful things about this story, um, not only is it based on true events, um, and I, I hesitate to say this, but I do believe maybe the first all-black production of Macbeth in, in our country. Um, but I, it, it ha- I think it, it's one of those movies, just as a story, has, has an appeal not only because of the struggle that people went through and the issues of racism and, and things that were going on at the time, but also just the idea of seeing so many black actors on stage doing this wonderful production and uh, the lessons that Orson Welles learned, um, I think, are fitting to the times and things that are happening right now. I, my understanding is that is still being negotiated as we speak. Um, I, I believe the hope is uh, sometime in February to possibly be streaming, but I don't know that it worked out yet. Okay, thank you for calling into our show, Inger Tudor, about Voodoo Macbeth. Thank you, and thank you for uh, doing this interview. I really appreciate it. It's nice to talk to you, Parrish. All right, thank you. Bye. Under the Works program, musicians, artists, writers, and actors contribute their share to the cultural development of the community. The Negro Theater Unit of the Federal Theater Project produced a highly successful version of Shakespeare's immortal tragedy, Macbeth, which far exceeded its scheduled run in New York and was later sent on a tour of the country. The scene was changed from Scotland to Haiti, but the spirit of Macbeth and every line in the play has remained intact. In this contribution to the American theater and in other projects under the works program, we have set our feet on the road toward a brighter future. And I care not about those for me as much. Fear not. Till Bernard Wood do come to Dunsinane, and now a wood comes toward Dunsinane. Oh, on and out! There is no fighting, there's no tearing here. I begin to be weary of the sun, and wish the estate of the world were now undone. Bring the alarm bell! At least we'll die with harness on our backs. What's he that was not born a woman? But the one am I to kill or none? Let me find him, fortune. Tyrant, show thy face. I cannot try to wretched turns whose arms are hired to bear their stairs. If thou beest slain and with no stroke of mine, my wife and children's ghost will haunt this cell. Where is thy name? My name's Macbeth. Turn, hellhound, turn. Of all men else, I have avoided thee. But get thee back. My soul is too much charged with blood of thine already. Then yield thee, coward, and live to be the show in the gaze of time. We'll have thee as our rare monsters are, painted upon a pole and under it. Here may you see the tyrant. I will not yield. Though Burnham would be come to Dunstanane, yet I will try the last. I have no hand. Let them be he who first cries, hold enough! <laughs> Thou losest labor, for I bear a charmed life which must not yield to one of woman born. Despair thy charm, and let the angel whom thou still hast served tell thee Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the tongue that tells me so. <laughs> and be these juggling fiends no more believe. <laughs> Hell King! <laughs> Behold! Where stands the usurper's cursed head? The time is free! All hail Malcolm! Peace! Charm! Wound up! 
It was a bigger political event. And there was a riot that night. The police were around because there was a big part of the black community that thought we were making fun of the blacks to make them in Shakespeare and that the people would go to laugh. So the police were there by hundreds to stop people from throwing bricks and so on because the word had gone out that it was, uh, you know, a kind of burlesque. And it was the contraire. And uh, I, I, I spent a long time rehearsing. I never rehearsed a play so long. Three months. And pendant tout cette, uh, tout le répétition, j'avais jamais donné un reading, comme on dit. I never read, said to an actor, you say, I never said, uh, uh, you sit, must say it like this. The whole speech of Shakespeare was invented by the blacks, a way of speaking it. And it was very interesting and very beautiful. I gave them no tradition at all. No, they, I brought none of the white Shakespearean tradition to it of speaking Shakespeare or of anything else. But they have such a strong musical and rhythmic sense, mm -hmm. the blacks, and they are so good at speech that they found a way of speaking. the morning sky All the birds are leaving Ah, how can they know It's time for them to go Before Hi, this is Judy Collins on Arts Express, and today I'm telling you, first of all, have a great day, and be sure to remember Arts Express. This is Judy Collins, so cheers. Sad, deserted shore, your fickle friends are leaving. Ah, but then you Coming up next on Arts Express, politics and movies. A look at the history of films that appear to be lighthearted, but actually pack a political punch through strange or thinly veiled messages. I paid my monthly premium for 10 years without so much as a cold. And now that I'm actually sick, you're gonna deny my coverage? Wow, that movie was a lot deeper than we thought. Welcome to WatchMojo.com, and today we're counting down our picks for the top 10 masked political messages in movies. I'm taking him out of here. He's vicious, doctor. For this list, we're looking at films that appear to be fun or lighthearted treats, but actually pack a nutritional political punch through strange or thinly veiled messages. Bonds, chattels, dividends, shares, bankruptcy, get off sale, opportunities. Number 10, The War on Terror, The Dark Knight. And here we go. 
In this beloved superhero flick, Batman has to stop the Joker from terrorizing Gotham. That may sound like your typical popcorn superhero blockbuster, but this movie can also be seen as an analogy for the war on terror, as well as the Bush administration. I killed those people. That's what I can be. No, no, you can't. You're not. How so? Well, first there's the Joker, who's like a terrorist that's willing to blow anything up and kill anyone, including himself, to get his message across. I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you a stranger. Then there's Batman, who's willing to cross the line to use a citywide tracking device that can tap into everyone's cell phones in the name of security. Sounds a bit like the Patriot Act, doesn't it? I'll help you this one time. But consider this my resignation. As long as this machine is at Wayne Enterprises, I won't be. Number nine, anti-colonialism, Avatar. Grace? Well, who'd you expect, numbnuts? This James Cameron sci-fi epic takes place in a future where humans are colonizing the world of Pandora, a celestial body that is home to an alien race called the Navi. Break formation, engage all hostiles. Naturally, the story holds many parallels to the devastation inflicted on Native American and other indigenous cultures during the colonial era. I can hear them. Both the Navi and Native Americans had strong connections to nature and had their land destroyed by a stronger foreign force that failed to accept the indigenous people's culture, instead only caring about how much power they could gain and making a profit. This is a place for prayers to be heard and sometimes answered. Overall, Avatar appears to be similar to many movies about Native Americans, except that it's set in space. If you want to share this world with them, you need to understand them. I'd say we understand them just fine. Number eight, McCarthyism, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I can't wait for Jack any longer. Stay here. You're not going out there. I've got to stop them. A story about an alien invasion in a small town in California where the aliens use emotionless human clones to infiltrate the town sounds more like a campy B-movie than a thought-provoking film. Whatever it is, whatever intelligence or instinct it is that can govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is it's fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension. Believe it or not, though, the aliens in this black-and-white sci-fi flick might actually be a symbol for communism, not unlike the alien amoeba in another classic horror film called The Blob. In Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the fear and paranoia the characters exhibit about the possibility that their friends and family could be aliens is similar to how Americans felt during the Red Scare and Republican U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy's witch hunt for communists. We had to dig them out from under the most peculiar things I ever saw. What things? Well, I don't know what they are. I never saw them before. They look like uh, great big seed pods. No wonder your grandpa hates commies so much. They're after you! They're after all of us! Our wives, our children, everyone! They're here already! Number seven, anti-copyright law, the Lego movie. Oh my gosh, I love this song! Everything is awesome. Everything is cool. This fun film takes place in a world made of Legos and is about a clash between a group called the Master Builders who believe that people should create whatever they want and the evil Lord Business, who frowns upon creativity. People everywhere are always messing with my stuff. Considering it's a movie about Legos, you wouldn't think this would have any political undertones. Man, I feel so good right now. I can sing this song for hours. However, Fox News, which described the movie as anti-capitalist, would disagree. After all, with a villain named Lord Business, the filmmakers are hardly being subtle. Vitruvius. Lord Business. Taking things further is the reading that the Lego movie is actually a thinly veiled critique of copyright laws, 
with Lord Business representing a force that restricts characters' artistic freedom, similar to arguments in the debate surrounding copyright and intellectual property. Can you feel me? I can feel you. Woo! Number six, anti-capitalism, Robocop. Ah, oh, you. RoboCop isn't just an over-the-top violent action flick about a cop who's resurrected as an unstoppable crime-fighting machine. It's also a critique of capitalism. You are under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. <laughs> you. <laughs> the movie takes place in a corrupt, crime-ridden, and bankrupt Detroit. The titular RoboCop discovers that the reason Detroit is so down on its luck is due to corporate greed, as Omni Consumer Products runs everything down to the police department. Take a close look at the track record of this company. The film also takes every opportunity to throw in parodies of product commercials, showcasing the ridiculousness of it all. Guess we'd all buy that for a dollar. And remember, we care. Number five, Equality, the X-Men franchise. I will bring you home, old friend. This comic book series is about a group of mutants who are despised by society, but still use their superpowers to kick butt and fight for justice. Two superpowers facing off and he wants to start World War III. In this franchise, the X-Men represent any minority that has been oppressed and ostracized. The leader of the heroes, Professor Xavier, with his goal of mutants coexisting with humans, was modeled after Martin Luther King Jr while the villain, Magneto, was modeled after Malcolm X thanks to his more hard-hitting approach to attaining civil rights and his desire for vengeance against those who terrorized him. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Further supporting the search for equality message, Magneto is a Holocaust survivor in many incarnations. Unfortunately, you killed my mother. Huh, and you thought this was just a comic book ride. Take off your blinders, brothers and sisters. The real enemy is out there. Number four, Animal Rights, Planet of the Apes. On the surface, Planet of the Apes appears to be a cheesy movie about a group of astronauts that crash land on a planet where humans are the chained up subservient species to apes. To suggest that we can learn anything about the simian nature from a study of man is your nonsense. Despite its cheesiness, the movie's role reversal plot does make a strong point about how we treat animals. That the ape evolved from a lower order of primate, possibly man. Interestingly enough, the movie came out around the same time that Jane Goodall was making her studies and would publish her landmark monograph about how chimpanzee society was more sophisticated than we thought. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Maybe they aren't really damn dirty apes after all. Tell us, why are all apes created equal? Some apes, it seems, are more equal than others. Ridiculous. Number three, vegetarianism, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They bash him in the head with a big sledgehammer. Oh, oh that's awful. A movie about a group of teenagers who get lost and become victims of a cannibalistic family sounds like it would appeal to those who love blood and violence. However, some of this slasher flick's biggest fans are in PETA. The methods that the family uses to murder the teens are reminiscent of the ones used to butcher and dismember cattle in a slaughterhouse. And then sometimes it wouldn't kill them. I mean, they'd skin them sometimes even before they were even oh, dead. that's horrible. Yeah. People shouldn't kill animals for food. The results are disgusting and disturbing, to say the least. Acting on a tip from Clyde Peewitz of Newt, the Muerto County Sheriff's Office began an investigation early this morning. After watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with this reading in mind, you'll likely never look at your Big Mac the same way again. <laughs> Number two, anti-feminism, Mary Poppins. It's her, it's the person. She's answered our advertisement, the rosy cheeks and everything. The charming Disney classic about a nanny who teaches a family to love and appreciate each other is really about how families shouldn't need nannies, because mothers should stay at home. What's the name of his other leg? <laughs> What? Well, if you recall, the Banks family needed Mary Poppins to take care of their spoiled and neglected kids, 
because the father is out earning a living and the mother is, well, out fighting for women's suffrage. I must hurry. Our gallant ladies in prison are waiting for me to lead them in song. And by the end of the movie, spoiler alert, Mrs. Banks gives up her cause to be a housewife. So what we're supposed to take away from this is women should know their place? At least that's what author P.L. Travers, whose book was the basis of the musical fantasy, believed after she attended the premiere. Number one, consumerism, Dawn of the Dead. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center, one of those big indoor malls. George A. Romero's cult classic is a lot more than your standard horror film. Oh my God. No chance, forget it, let's get out of here. Wait a minute, they can't get up here. Yeah, and we can't go down there. Let's check it out. In fact, all of his zombie tales focus on different aspects of real life, such as the racism and Vietnam War parallels found in Night of the Living Dead. Now, you get the hell down in the cellar. You can be the boss down there. I'm boss up here. In Dawn of the Dead, the premise focuses on a group of survivors barricading themselves in a mall during a zombie apocalypse. Listen, with those bay doors open, there's gonna be a thousand zombies in here. Better take the heat off us. By using the mall as the setting, the horror film appears to be taking a stab at consumer culture. For instance, the characters use the free merchandise as a distraction, while the zombies mindlessly shamble to the shopping center, just like they did when they were still alive. Do you agree with our list? You might see a mess. Exactly. And a bunch of weird, dorky stuff that ruined my perfectly good stuff. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Art World Beat. Both events call attention to a moment of crisis that cannot be resolved by simply shooting the messenger a continuing examination of new directions in political art at Germany's Documenta II and the Berlin Berlinale, and Documenta as the first major art festival in the West to be given over entirely to the Third World and reactions against it. This is Bro on the Art World Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Attack on Documenta 15, Whys and Wherefores. Documenta 15, the Lumbung Documenta, curated by an Indonesian collective and the first major art festival in the West to be given over entirely to a developing world group, has been unceasingly attacked by Western critics as being anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist, and anti-Israeli. The rationale of this festival, a concerted attack on Western capitalist individual and productivist modes in art and in the world in general from various developing world collectives, is a challenge to those modes. The festival's early statement on critics characterizing it as non-art is that we refuse to be exploited by European institutional agendas that are not ours to begin with. To a lesser degree, another art institution operating a concurrent festival, the Berlin Biennale, though it points stridently critical itself of these practices, also worked as a counter to the more unbridled spirit of the Lungbung Documenta. A major part of the festival is education and the opening room of the Frederikerkanium, the main display area is given over to an educational playground for kids where children and artists can connect. This alternative attempt at education was answered by the West by appointing a panel to conduct a scientific investigation of the site. The panel then declared the festival was rife with anti-Semitism, a charge specifically in Germany with its horrible history that is designed to be the main way most people hearing the festival will remember it. There are several points to make about this charge. The first is that no shred of anti-Semitism should ever be tolerated, especially in Germany, which not only has its genocidal past to deal with, but also a powerful far-right party, the AFD, where these sentiments may surface. In the most radical of the groups at the festival, Taring Potty, the inquiry found a distorted representation of a hook-nosed figure in a mural, which the group quickly removed. When asked, by the way, where the figure came from, their answer was that they did not know who had drawn it since they were a collective and could not recall but that there was a strong possibility that the iconography had originated with the Dutch colonizers, that is, in the West. Other instances are more problematic. The festival has been attacked for a cinematic exhibit by a Japanese group called Tokyo Real. It has found footage of several 1960s and 70s Palestinian films, transmitted originally to the long-since disbanded Red Army, 
runs in an original display where the footage is the center of a painted film strip. The films themselves are seen as one of the opening salvos of what was to become a third world film movement, a key part of the filmmaking of that period. They highlight, for example, the treatment of Palestinians in the camps in various parts of the Middle East and call Zionist practice and methods into question. The curators refuse to remove the film. And exhibited about the Algerian women in that country's struggle for independence and unearthing of a too-long-forgotten history undertaken by the Harak People's Movement, which has attempted reform in that country, consisted prominently of two blown-up silkscreens of women in the streets together rallying to overturn the 130-year history of French rule. There was apparently in a table off to the side one book with anti-Semitic photos, which should have simply been removed. But to find that book, a spectator would have had to search mightily and would have had to ignore the thrust of the exhibition. And in many ways, the criticism is designed to have spectators do just that, to ignore 99% of the content and focus on the 1% that should have been removed. But the critics claim the entire festival is replete with this imagery. This claim is the standard one of attempting to collapse three concepts, anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, and any critique of the policies of the current Israeli state. The first is loathsome, should be erased, and has no place in any festival or in the world. The second, anti-Zionism, is in some way depends on one's perspective, and is echoed by the statement by a Jewish commentator that the founding of the Jewish state is the greatest triumph and the worst tragedy of the 20th century. A triumph for the Jewish people, but a tragedy in light of the endless war and destruction it has brought to the region. On the question of the nation-state, it was Palestinian director Ilya Suleiman who once said that he was for a Palestinian state until the moment it was founded, and then he would become its harshest critic. On the question, though, of the current policies of the state of Israel, which continues to move further and further to the right, there is no doubt that, as Marx said, ruthless criticism of the existing order is what is needed. This is a colonial apartheid state, and with its left mostly erased, one that brooks no interference. It is also now, perhaps besides the U.S., the most ruthlessly neoliberal capitalist state, which in its digital defense industry supports spyware from companies like Pegasus, which was developed on the backs of the surveillance of Palestinians, and which recently finally admitted to killing a female journalist for Al Jazeera after first blaming the Palestinians. They said it was sorry and then closed the case with no investigation over whether or not this was a targeted assassination. The attempted documenta and elsewhere is to silence any criticism of the Israeli state by conflating the three concepts. There were some errors made at Documenta, foremost among them being that there should have been more participation among Jewish progressive collectives and groups critical of the policies of Israel, for example, the Jewish Voices of Peace, which supports the BDS boycott of Israel. BDS, which essentially attempts to organize a ban on all products coming from the settler colonial factories of the occupied West Bank, though it is now outlawed in Germany and in many states in the U.S., continues to gather momentum. The larger thrust of the critique, though, is that this is the West's answer to developing people's critiquing its institutions. While the Lumbung Documenta was in many ways about education, the scientific panel convened to investigate Documenta was in effect doing a little schooling of its own, that is, teaching this group of collectives that they had better think twice before again launching such a critique. A softer, more restrained, but in ways no less adamant critique of Western practices, though one solidly contained by the parameters of the contemporary art world, was a recently concluded Berlin Biennale. Here, as in Documenta, Abstraction was minimized as artists confronted the issues of the day with, in some cases, an obsessive documentary intensity. Moses Mars's mapmaking highlights the spirit of Bandung, the Asian and African newly independent states conference in 1955 that announced their non-aligned position of independence from the major powers in the Cold War. The work, a maze of arrows, text, and circles, is in its intensity a kind of political art brute or outside art, an unearthing and charting of colonial cruelty and its resistance with all the painstaking details of Henry Darger's Vivian Girls, but here in a geopolitical rather than a psychosexual context. India's Prabhakar Gambles, ragged feet of agricultural workers with a metal filament, then leading to, in one case, a, a miniature of a blue cow, points to the fact that that beast is sacred in the country, while poor rural workers form the basis, the foundation, the feet of the economy, but are ground under by this oppressive inequality. Likewise, Berender Yadav's actual worn sandals spread out below photographs of the almost numb feet of workers in a brick factory, the feet as hard as bricks, recall Van Gogh's peasants' feet in a global linking of oppressed workers. 
Juan Jacques Lebel's life-size photos of the torture at the Iraqi prison Abu Ghraib, with U.S. soldiers looking on amused, interspersed with photos of the shock and aisle annihilation of Baghdad, was even more effectively rendered because it was laid out in a maze, or it was difficult in the fog of war to keep from getting lost. Dao Chao Hao's Ballad of the East Sea was a sculpture of undulating waves with sharp blades, waves that could kill as the sea think of the current U.S. battleships in the South China Sea, becomes increasingly militarized. Finally, Alex Prager's Crowd No. 4 New Haven was a crowd scene shot from above, where all the individuals in this collective space are exerting every inch of their will to accentuate their own personality through hairstyle, dress, and makeup, and deny the existence of the collective. In the end, in a way that throws that consumer-defined concept into question, they are imprisoned in their own individuality. The Berlin Biennale, a safer art space operating within the more abstract and conceptual framework of the commercial art world, nevertheless also, as did Documenta, pointed to the fact that Western modes of production and conceptualizing are not only homogenizing but also destroying the planet. Documenta's stronger presentation drew fire from outside the art world, though it was strongly supported from within. But both events call attention to a moment of crisis that cannot be resolved by simply shooting the messenger. This is Bro on the Art World Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.